Hey everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament, and today we are in 1 Thessalonians 4. After just laying out a beautiful prayer for the church at Thessalonica, Paul now starts beginning a final exhortation on how they are to live a life that is pleasing to God, and how that life should be lived in light of the return of Christ. Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more, and do, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We'll stop right there for now. So here is this call to live a life that is pleasing to God. And that life first is marked by sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And the goal of sanctification is holiness, right? And he makes it very clear. God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, right? We are to be holy, set apart. Our lives should be different. And anyone who disregards this, Paul says, disregards not man. You're not disregarding me. You're disregarding God and his will for you. The very reason he gave his Holy Spirit to you was for your sanctification, that you might be holy. And from there, he now moves to the concept of love. And I love what he says here in verse 9. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, but for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. This should show us something very important about the nature of where this brotherly, divine sense of love should come from. It is a gift and a teaching from God. It comes directly from and through the Holy Spirit in our lives. If there is no love, then God is not at work in us. And that is very clear from John's epistles as well. If there is no love for your brother, no love for others, then God is not in you. For God is love, and if God is at work in you, that love that is going to be guided by the Spirit and and filled with truth will be full in your heart, and it will be poured out onto others. And then he gives these final uh, kind of uh, con- picture of an urge of how they are to live. Right? First, live quietly. That is, don't make a ruckus. Don't, don't seek to go out of your way to bring negative attention to yourself. Mind your own affairs. Don't be nosy. Mind your own business. Focus on yourself. Worry about what you can and you can't control. Right. Focus on those things. Work with your own hands so that you can live properly. You can be well-respected by others and never be dependent on anyone, right? When, when you are pe- dependent on others, it robs your ability to influence others and your ability to live in freedom for Christ. 
And now he closes this this portion, really which he closes the letter, with how what should be the driving encouragement to cause us to live in this kind of manner, a manner of sanctification, of love, of edifying, uh, of being edifying to one another, and ultimately to live in light of this uh, persecution that is being faced. How can we live faithfully in a world of persecution? And the answer is to look and to live with the end in sight. Live with the end in sight and the reality that Christ will come. So he says here, verse 13 through the end of the chapter, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of, of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of, the, of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so here he talks about those who have already gone asleep. These are those who have died, passed away already. But it's so often this standard metaphor for death uh, was used by Jews and Christians. The term has no particular reference to the state of the soul. There's no soul sleep or anything like that. But rather, it's simply the idea that in Christ there is no death, right? It's merely a passing on into another blessed existence, right? Awaiting for the resurrection to come. And so there's no need to grieve at all as others do because we have hope. We have hope like the world doesn't. So we don't need to grieve when one of our brothers and sisters in the Lord passes on because we know fully and clearly that the Lord, that they are with the Lord and that the Lord will return and that God will bring with him when he returns this reality that they will come with him as Christ comes in his second coming. They will come with him to receive their glorified bodies as will all of those who are waiting for him as they will be caught up, we are told. They will be caught up in the sense of there will be a unity, a, a bringing from that. They will be caught up with the Lord, receive their glorified bodies as the Lord brings judgment onto the unbelieving world. The New Testament repeatedly announces that Jesus Christ will one day return. His second coming or presence, this, the Greek word is parousia, will be a royal visit. Christ's return will be personal and physical, visible and triumphant. And at the second coming, Jesus will bring an end to history. He will raise the dead and judge the world and impart to God's children their final glory. Paul says that Christ will then deliver the kingdom and become subject to the Father. In saying this, Paul does not mean that Christ is reduced in honor, but that he will have completed the plan that God assigned to him for redeeming the elect in heaven, and the elect will honor the Lamb who opened the book of God's salvation. According to verses 16 and 17, Christ's coming will be a descent from the sky, heralded by a trumpet, a shout, and the voice of the archangel. Those who died in Christ will be raised, and Christians living on earth will be caught up to meet Christ. This event will mark the end of life in this world as we know it. 
and the beginning of life in unbroken communion with God. The idea that Christians will be taken out of this world for a period after which Christ will appear still a third time for the second coming has been held by many, but this lacks scriptural support. The New Testament specifies much that will take place between Christ's two comings. However, apart from the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, these predictions are of ongoing processes rather than single events and do not yield even an approximate date for Christ's appearance. The Gentile world will be summoned to faith. Many Jews will be brought into the kingdom. There will be false prophets and false Christ. There will be apostasy from the faith and tribulation for the faithful. A man of lawlessness must appear. Yet no dates can be deduced from these predictions. The time of Jesus' return remains completely unknown to us. Christ teaches that it will be a tragic disaster, though, for anyone who is not ready when he returns. The thought of his return should be constantly in our minds, encouraging us in our present Christian living, causing us to stand ready to meet Christ at any time and to live a life with the end in sight living daily with the expectation that Christ might return? And if so, how would we want Him to find us living? Should we be living fully and completely in service to Him, calling the world to repent and to turn to its Savior, so that they might too live when He returns, rather than face His wrath? The Lord will come, and we will be with Him together if we stand and, and turn to Him and Him alone. He is our hope. He is our salvation. And we will, when we see Him on that day, it will be joy for those who are in Him by faith. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God bless.